modesty, which says there are limits and that's okay. You're a creature. You're not the creator. And, um, and uh, to embrace those is not somehow a, a counsel of despair. It is, it is, in fact, the beginning of hope. It's not shame-inducing and defeating to say that I cannot know it all, do it all, be it all, be everywhere to all people. It's shame-inducing and defeating to say that I can, I just haven't pulled it off yet. And that's a countercultural thing to say because people hear you say, well, well, all this talk of limitations and um, that sounds that sounds sad or uh, like bad self, self-esteem. And you're like, no, modesty, that kind of modesty, that kind of a sense of our own limitations actually sets us up for to be grateful for what we do have um, and who we actually are rather than uh, who we're continually failing to be. Some ideal version of ourselves that doesn't exist and never really will. friends, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is the fourth episode of 2023. Fresh episode for you, dropping with David Zoll today. We're talking to David Zoll, who's an author, speaker, podcaster, pastor, but we're talking to him today about low anthropology, the unlikely key to a gracious view of others and yourself. Basically, we're talking to David Zoll about the anti-self-help movement. So, Thank you so much to Compassion Canada, who's lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name, and to Scripture Untangled, a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. They're making this podcast possible and bringing it to your ears and to your eyeballs if you're checking this out on YouTube. More on them later. But hey, speaking of the YouTube and all that stuff, if uh, you are watching us, hit subscribe, send us a comment, let us know what you think about this episode. If you are on podcast apps, we love a rate or review. It helps us know how you enjoy it. Also, helps us have other people find this podcast. It would mean a lot if you could do that. And ultimately, we want to keep sending you content and keep offering it to more people so that it um, helps more people communicate the best news in the world and be encouraged in this digital landscape that we live in. It's complicated and we'd love to help you. So let me tell you a little bit about David Zell, who we're talking today. He's the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, editor-in-chief of the popular Mockingbird website and co-host of The Mockingcast, which is a podcast. He and his family live in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he also serves on staff at a church. So here is the conversation. Hope you enjoy it with David Zoll. David Zoll, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Joanna. I'm thrilled to be here. And, you know, I will say it's always fun to to podcast with someone who podcasts because uh, you know this medium uh, and maybe it feels a bit like the tables are flipped if you're interviewing others sometimes, but I'm so glad to uh, to just get a little bit of time with you and get in your brain. <laughs> yeah, what a wonderful opportunity to, I mean, to be able to sit down and talk and actually interview people who are so far away uh, physically or geographically. I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's the, the internet has taken many things from us, but it has given us some wonderful gifts too. And this is one of them. So, <laughs> well, Hey, before we maybe go too far into what, you know, I'd love to know what you think about what the internet has taken away, but can you give us a little, give us a bit of a context of who you are and what your work is before we go too much farther? Sure. I am uh, an author and also a a preacher uh, sometimes. (laughs) Uh, I run something called Mockingbird Ministries and uh, we're, 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 
kind of a very early digital platform for doing ministry. Uh, I would just say connecting the grace of God with everyday life. And we we got it. We're 15 years old, um, but I also serve on the staff part-time of a church here, an Episcopal church in, I'm in central Virginia in the States. So I'm right where the University of Virginia is and um, lived here for the last uh, 12 years, but the Mockingbird was founded in New York City. Um, And so what I do, what I write about is I write a lot about the intersection of culture and theology, but I try to do it not at an academic level. I guess you could, more sort of a cultural criticism uh, Mm. with a with a strong pastoral, what used to be called apologetic, uh, today is just called, I don't even know what it's called, phenomenological or something, but an edge where, where I'm really trying to uh, uh, rebrand or um, retrieve the good news of the Christian faith in a way that mm. is both intellectually and emotionally intelligible to uh, you know contemporary people. Mm. Well, and, and for this reason, I wanted to to have you on the podcast, because what we often say around here, what I often say around Word Made Digital is uh, that the church doesn't just have good news. We have the best news in the world. <laughs> and so often we make the best news sound like the worst news. Um, we And so, you know, we, we endeavor to try and tackle this question of how can <laughs> how can we be better communicators if we have the most important thing to communicate? Uh, and that's sort of the, the, the heart behind we're made digital as a whole, but, but you seem to share this passion for, um, the urgency of good news and trying to translate this in culture. So maybe before we go a little too far, Mockingbird Ministries and, you know, the Mocking Castles, what's this Mockingbird thing? What what does that word come from? Is that significant? (laughs) It is, uh, it's meant to... Um, refer to the fact that the the, the animal, uh, the the bird itself, that repeats what it's heard in sort of mimicry, but mm. also in simply resounding, um, uh, you know, repetition of the song. It's it, you know, a mockingbird repeats the songs of other birds or sounds that it's heard. And I I think as a Christian, uh, I don't have something new to say. I am I, we've been given a message which I think is uh, beautiful and true and mm. of deep urgency uh, uh, about the, about not just the reality of God, but the reality of a good and forgiving and gracious God. Um, And I want to repeat that. I don't think that uh, people ever really graduate or move past their need to hear the essential good news of the Christian faith. So um, a mockingbird repeats the song it's heard, and that's what we try to do, hopefully not in an irritating way, or an annoying way, but in a way that is, uh, you know, kind of comes at things sometimes slant, sometimes head on. But uh, our goal is to, um, yeah, repeat the sounding joy. Isn't that the the Christmas carol? So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just on the other side of uh, Christmas, I love that. Um, well, and I wondered if it had to do, uh, you know, mocking, you know, the mockingbird. I immediately think of a To Kill a Mockingbird. So I was curious uh, if. There was some sort of like uh, reference to that in your work, but I love that. That's kind of beautiful how you're talking about that and the mockingbird. Um, well, yeah, Harper Lee. I mean, who doesn't want to be associated with that? So I, I have actually run into quite a few people who found mockingbird through searching hmm. for to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> oh, wow. um, but uh, there's no formal connection. Otherwise, yeah. other than the fact that it's a it's a 
a nice um, image, I think. Well, and because you use this word now, I'm going to follow my curiosity here. You're talking about urgency. Um, do you mean that? Why is it urgent? Do you feel like, do you feel like, is this a thing that keeps you up at night? Uh, when you say urgency, what what do you mean? And mm. how how are you seeing that play out? Well, there's all sorts of ways to understand the urgency of um, ministry or it, gospel proclamation or uh, for me, it's that I, I look around and I see in other people and myself uh, despair and mm. I see uh, despair related to meaninglessness. I see it related to burnout and just kind of a tireless perfectionism that seems to have taken hold of a the, at least the Western mindset where you are only as good as what you produce and so better get back on that treadmill. And, um, so I see, a, and I see a lot of loneliness. Um, mm. so the, 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 all the cultural conditions that, uh, that I'm not immune to as a Christian, but I'm sensitive to, um, I find that the, uh, to say nothing of kind of a spiritual bankruptcy, <laughs> you know, um, huh. I, I see our culture as a sort of a cultural despair. And I think it's a, a culture of despair because there's no, um, uh, there's no real grace in, in, in baked into the, the world in which we're, as we're currently living. And maybe that's always been the case. Maybe that's why God had to come into the world and sort of shout and this message and, or even die on a cross. Like that's how countercultural it has always been. But I, I feel it, uh, surrounded by, yeah, the, the, the 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 different waves i guess or the whirlpool of exhaustion perfectionism loneliness um that manifests as a kind of despair um that you see more and more as you kind of rise up the socioeconomic ladder mm. um partly because you know the, the the great conundrum of of our time is that we have more than we've ever had before in human history. And um, we seem to be more unhappy than we've ever been and more self-medicated and more uh, all these things. So that, that afflicts me as a, as a, I, I feel it in myself sometimes, but I see it around me. I work in a church. I run into actual people who are dying for some hope. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that to me is urgent to say nothing of the salvation of souls, I, which I very much uh, believe in um, that, um, the promise of eternal life is a, is a major uh, urgent question for me as someone who's going to die. Um, huh. And I think for anyone who's going to die, of course, you're living in a culture that does everything it can to cordon off death from everyday experience. Then you're going to, not to run into that issue in the same way, but everyone will run into it eventually. So urgency on all, on all fronts. Mm. Uh now, because I don't know your own story, uh, it, does this come out of some of your own personal testimony? When you talk, like for so, in uh, listeners of this podcast would know, death has been close to me lately. My father died just a couple months ago, and uh, you know, wrestling through his illness and death, uh, it becomes very real and very close to the surface uh, and on my mind. Is 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 there something in your own story? Bianca, of course, we as humans will all die. Is that part of your own story uh, as of late or maybe 
is that a characterization of your life uh, that that's been on your mind? Well, um, I, I wouldn't say, and I wouldn't want to say that I've had sudden tragedies occur that have rocked my world in the way that, you know, other, other than by osmosis and just being a person mm-hmm. who reads the headlines. Um, both of my parents are alive and well um, right now, uh, and my children as well. So, um, however, I have had to deal with my fair share of human suffering. And um, I would say uh, addiction has been something that's long affected my own family and uh, mm. lots of alcoholism in my family and lots of depression. And those, are, those tend to be two areas of human life where um, our own resources fall short of, um, of, of solutions. So if anyone who's dealt with someone who is deeply suffering from sort of mental illness or depression, even anxiety, or someone who's in the throes of addiction, you know that willpower and just, yeah, your one's own internal resources are not enough that you, you, you start to look for God and you say, if there's going to be help in this scenario, it's got to come from somewhere out there. Hopefully, uh, you know, if if God is real, show yourself, you know, and and that's, that's, those are moments that none of us can really uh, escape. And I'd say in my own life, I've dealt with that in very close proximity, um, Mm. a number of ways. Yeah. And so you've, you've written a few, you've written, well, you, you write often and regularly and you have a huge following in terms of the writing you're doing online with Mockingbird. But, um, your most recent book is called Low Anthropology about Mm -hmm. the unlikely key to gracious view of others and yourself. So let's move there because first of all, like, you say we all go through life with an anthropology. We got to stop there. What the heck is anthropology? Uh, <laughs> I took, I took a course on it. You know, in my freshman year, like you know, but uh, most of us don't really know. It just sounds like something about the study of human evolution or something. What is mm. anthropology? And then let's talk about the high low thing. Sure. Well, anthropology is not, I mean, that is a risk to title your book with the kind of an intimidating (laughs) ology word. And that's what I was told because I went to a college where I avoided anthropology courses. You know, there was, it was about, um, you know, because, because I wasn't interested in, you know, doing a research project, you know, in the Amazon, because talking about the the way cultures are formed. And that's usually what people mean by anthropology, but philosophers and theologians have long used that, that same term and they use it to, to simply, it's actually a shorthand for your view of human beings, your, your understanding of human nature. And so when someone says, I'm only human, you know, what does that mean? Hmm. What's the content of that phrase? Uh, and, uh, what are the, um, what are the presuppositions we have about what men and women are capable of, what kind of principles govern our behavior, what we're not so good at, what we tend to tend to do well, what are the liabilities, what are the capabilities? Everyone has some sense, whether it's conscious or cobbled together or completely explicit or contradictory, I don't know, but I know that um, what we think, our view of human beings tends to inform our expectations of them Hmm. and ourselves. So if I think 
we are rational creatures making healthy decisions if we have the right information. Well, then I will expect other people, if I simply give them the right information, that they will make what I would consider to be a logical choice in their behavior. That's one, that's an anthropology. Uh, I would say that that's not... Um, the Christian anthropology, that we are not, in fact, rational uh, creatures, you know, uh, you, you bang your head against the wall very quickly if you start to expect people to constantly be um, logical. Um, and you bang your or head against... Or at least your, your position of what logic is, your, of Yes, or your understanding the, of their best yeah. interests. But also yeah. oneself. It's like, uh, you know, I'm a mystery. Uh, what did Augustine say? I am a vast enigma to myself. And... Hmm. Um, Oftentimes, the places of pain in our lives are the places where we. Now, I'm I'm sort of getting into my the, what what I lay out as a low anthropology, but um, an anthropology simply means what you mean by human nature, your understanding of human beings, and so I think everyone has one, um, and I, I don't think it's possible. You can have an optimistic view, you can have a pessimistic or cynical view, you can have a some sort of mixture, um, but you can't yeah. not have one. And so then you talk about. High anthropology versus, of course, the title of your book, low anthropology. So let's start with high. Um, yes. What is a high anthropology? These are, uh, you know, these are yeah. like, I'm sorry you're, you're having to go into definitions here, but, you know, it's sort of setting the scene for this whole conversation. Um, oh, sure. You know, so, it's, it's, yeah. you, you use a foreign term in the title of your book. You have to, you have to be willing to define it. <laughs> <laughs> um a high anthropology is an optimistic view of human nature. It's any kind of grandiose vision of what men and women are are, are capable of. A sunny mm -hmm. estimation. Uh, it's not not. It doesn't map entirely onto human beings are good versus human beings are bad. Like it's it's complicated. What what is the most reliably true thing about a person? And um, is it what they put on their resume or is it what they leave off their resume? I mean, these are the sort of, uh, I, 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 in the book, I use Steve Jobs as an example of a high anthropology because in, in a graduation speech to Stanford University in 2005, he told them sort of to have the courage to follow your heart and to uh, your intuitions know where it is you want to go. And I'm paraphrasing there. And that's a high anthropology. And it sounds great when you're 22. Um, and, and, and you haven't really gotten out into the world very much. <laughs> huh. But when you're 43, as, as I am, I mean, you sort of wonder, wait a second, my heart didn't always lead me in the, the place I wish it had led me. Or there are a few, there are a few U-turns uh, or cul-de-sacs. Mm -hmm. um, and my intuition, you know, it seems like sometimes I have a good intuition, but uh, what about my sibling? They got a lot better intuition than I did, you know, certainly when it comes to romantic partners or to, you know, financial, I, I don't know what it is, but I think that that's a high anthropology. Now, a low anthropology is what is just a more sober estimation of human nature. And I, to, as an example, I quote Anne Lamott, uh, the Christian writer who says, everybody is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Uh, even those who seem to have it more or less together. They're much more like you than you would care to believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. Hmm. That slightly more, I don't know, insulting anthropology, actually when people hear it, and I've you know, spoken about it, you, you just watch them like breathe deeply like a sigh of relief. Like, oh, hmm. I'm not the only one who's kind of barely hanging on or making it up as I go along. Hmm. Um that's a low anthropology. So it, it, it can also sort of, you can talk about like what is, um, 
Yeah. What, what are the ties that bind us one to another? Is it our gifts or is it our blind spots? And in my view, um, our gifts are vastly different. God has given everyone very different gifts. And that's part of the beautiful panoply of what it means to be uh, in the world, but also as a Christian in the body of Christ. But we have very similar weaknesses and uh, it has a lot to do with a pride, self-righteousness, sin, and death. I mean, those are the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. You can find, I can find a foothold for compassion and sympathy with you if I know where the pain is. And, um, mm-hmm. or just, it doesn't mean I, there's no such thing as right or wrong, but, um, love reliably, um, is found is it, or it is established in moments of weakness rather than triumph. And that's what a low anthropology is trying to, it's like a comprehensive view of human nature. Yes, we're capable of great things, but what 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 keeps us up at night? What really tells the story of our lives is our um, fallibilities and the way God. I mean, as a Christian, I believe the way that God has used us as broken vessels to accomplish great and beautiful things in the world. Jumping in here to the conversation with David Zoll to talk to you about the Bible and a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society because the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe. But Scripture Untangled is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society and it brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, Bible thinkers, artists, and more. And it's helping you understand and dive into the Bible for yourself. You can listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled wherever you listen to podcasts and visit scriptureuntangled.ca for more info. That's scriptureuntangled.ca. I think that's so interesting, this idea at its simplest that the things that tie us to one another are the things that are broken or in, you know, these foibles and sins or struggles or Mm. pain points, as opposed to um, look at these great things that actually those things are different in each person. The thing that makes someone great, strong, awesome, beautiful, it varies from person to person, but the thing that makes us kind of human. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Human, right? The superhuman thing is different maybe in each person, the things that we're most amazing at or stand out. But the things that make us most human are the things that are the broken, the struggling bits. So there's a few places I it leads me to, to go from here uh, as we keep this conversation going. But, um, you know, you talked about this sort of like the 20-year-old self versus the 40-year-old self. Um what happens along the way there? Because I think the older you get, the more you are, uh, well, the, maybe the more bitter or curmudgeon, you know, the, you know, the grumpy old person that some people can become. Maybe it's, maybe it's realistic is a friendlier way of saying it versus idealistic. Um, how does that happen? And how do we not like squash this thing in young people? Because I think sometimes what happens is that older people, you know, get really curmudgeon with younger people who are idealistic and hopeful and want to change the world um, and haven't maybe seen a lot yet. But 
it often is those young idealistic people who do make some interesting changes and moves forward because mm. because they actually thought they could do it. So maybe I'm curious about how that progress of our life naturally happens and how do we not, um, you know, just like crap on the dreams of young people. <laughs> yeah, I know. So much f- fun. And I mean, I'm a person who loves great music and so much of it is is made by people who are young mm. and uh, not, not uh, haven't been introduced to some of the limitations that, uh, and, and therefore they can transcend some of them. Mm. Um, and just the, you know, the, the passion, you know, I, I, I was a youth minister in a sort of a former life and um, I, I feel like uh that energy that was pretty idealistic was still really fruitful. I mean, it was, it was, I don't have it now. I don't have the same energy that I had did when I was 24, but, um, I see that God used it in interesting ways. So how do we crap, not crap on youth? Uh, well, I think there's a couple <laughs> to be direct things. about what I'm trying to say, you know, how well, do you I, not do that? Let me say that the, I knew that the book had reached the place where I wanted it to when I gave it to one of my dear friends here, who's a, a woman in her sort of mid-60s and someone I really respect. And she's a spiritual director and a, and a social worker and all these things. And I said, did, did it, was this a depressing book to you? Like, tell me, was it depressing? And she said, she said, David, I felt better with every page of this book. Um, it was hmm. wonderfully uplifting. And because I was, didn't want it to be a shame-inducing or darkness-casting uh, piece of work, I wanted it to be something where people felt less alone afterwards and more a part of the human race and more uh, like an invitation to collaboration and friendship and ultimately to relationship with God. Um so I think that that's partly, uh, that's one thing to say. The other thing I say is like, the, we get curmudgeonly about the world, oftentimes when we adopt a strange sort of high anthropology. And what I mean by that is uh, a high anthropology uh, understands that it does not really have a firm grasp on human limitation. And one of the ways a high anthropology doesn't is it assumes that you can know things for certain and it can, you mm. can kind of have full mastery over reality or events. And we live in a time, we live, we know, we know we live in an age of high anthropology because we're living in the midst of these warring certainties where everyone is not just 95% sure about their positions or their stances, they're 110% sure. And so a low anthropology says that in fact, there are limits to what you can do, but there are also limits to what you can know that no one by mm. virtue of being a person in a time and place, um, can know everything about anything. And there's always one more drawer to open. And so a low anthropology properly understood, I think, um, it, it, it forecloses the sort of cynicism that manifests itself as curmudgeonly grumbling. Because that kind of curmudgeonly grumbling usually is a form of certainty about things never going well or huh. meeting, always being bad. Or I am, I am finishing your sentences, you young person, you know, like I'm writing the script for your life. And, and a, a low anthropology actually says, I'm not in the position to do that. Um, yet, yes, I may have some skepticism about the youthful idealism, but let's see where it goes. Like uh, it's, it's not mine to control. Um, and Lord knows God, God has done great things through people that were full of, um, 
you know, naivete. Uh, and if, 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 if God only used those who were uh, completely humble in the right ways, then he would use very few people. So, um, mm. I think that's a, a part of it is, is to the, the embrace of a, of a, just some element of uncertainty and mystery allows a person as they grow older to understand the limitations of life as it under the sun, while also not, um, foreclosing the possibility of grace and love um, and beauty because where I'm from where I'm sitting like given what human beings are like I am amazed and baffled and also deeply grateful for the enormous amounts of beauty and goodness I see on offer in the world despite despite what how people have treated me and how I've treated other people Hmm. Yeah, this idea of limitation, uh, there's a humility to it that comes as you learn your limits, as you learn the limits of yourself, the limits of uh, the the ability of others, the limits of, I don't know, a, a certain leader. You know, I think we all get disappointed by leaders or politics or a boss or, you know, whatever it may be. These people we put our hope in, including ourselves, and then you realize the limits of that person or that thing. And it does soften your idealism, but I think it also, um, one of my mentors talks about the right sizing of yourself, the right Hmm. sizing of your visions in, in relation to God, because there's this thing we often talk about here on the podcast is this digital world, right? And Hmm. it's this idea of like, you can be all places at all times to all people. You can like the, the promise, the great promise of these digital platforms is, you can be everywhere and know everything and connect to everyone. Hmm. And, you know, there's an, a limitless possibility to earn income off the internet and, you know, whatever else these promises are. But I think particularly this omnipresence thing that is a God quality that we can be all places and know all things. And, you know, but of course we are in one place at one time. We can only respond to so many messages, see so many things before it starts to get in our brains in a messed up way. Mm. Um, And so you (laughs) use the word, but you also use this word modesty, which I think is an interesting way to describe it. Um, Talk to me about that. Yeah. Modesty is 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 an actual virtue. I think it's not um, that is undersold today um, in light of our... uh, the perceived limitlessness, because I think that 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 perceived limitlessness that you've just described is uh, is actively oppressive. Like I find it to be the source of a lot of the students that I I work with, college students a lot, and this idea that you can be all things to all people or in in all places at all times. Like regardless of what my kids' soccer coaches may think, you cannot. And um, it's uh, that is actually produces this thing that sounds optimistic actually produces defeat. And, mm. um, and, 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 and worse things than that, you know, it, it produces real nihilism, um, and despair. Uh, so I, I think there's, um, that perceived limitlessness is, 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 is in opposition to something like modesty, it, uh, modesty, which says there are limits and that's okay. You're a creature. You're not the creator. And, um, and uh, to embrace those is not somehow a, a counsel of despair. It is, an, it is in fact, the beginning of hope. Um, because, you know, uh, what did I, what, there's, a, there's a great uh, line in the beginning of the book that I sort of borrowed from a friend. So, um, but it was, it's not 
shame-inducing and defeating to say that I cannot know it all, do it all, be it all, be everywhere to all people. It's shame-inducing and defeating to say that I can, I just haven't pulled it off yet. Um, right. And that's a countercultural thing to say because people hear you say, well, well, all this talk of limitations and um, that sounds that sounds sad or uh, like a bad self, <laughs> self-esteem. And you're like, no, modesty, that kind of modesty, that kind of a sense of our own limitations actually sets us up for to be grateful for what we do have mm-hmm. um, and who we actually are rather than uh, who we're continually failing to be. Some ideal version of ourselves that doesn't exist and never really will. Well, it it's this anxiety, isn't it? When when I hear you say that, it's this constant. I'm not enough. I have to do more, do more, do more. You know, there's language about hustle culture, and then there's the quiet quitting where people are like, "Forget it. I don't want to do this anymore." It's these responses to like, "I can't do all this. I don't want to do all this. Do I have to do all this? <laughs> I'm not well doing all this." <laughs> and we, you know, self medicate whether that's um, you know, caffeine and alcohol, like the mild uh, socially acceptable ones, or it's prescription drugs, or it's, you know, a thousand other things that might be, um, equally harmful, but like maybe less socially acceptable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, you know, yeah. one of the, the, when you were saying that to me, I, it, it's worth mentioning that the book was really in part written as a response to this widespread sense of burnout, this, this, it's become mm-hmm. a buzzword, burnout. Everyone's yeah. burned out. And what does it mean yeah. to be burned out? Well, it means you're living in a world that's demanding more of you than you can possibly deliver. And, or it's what it's delivering back to you is if you feel betrayed by. And that is a culture of high anthropology. And I want to, um, it, it's painful. It's painful to me because I, 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 I buy into the same, uh, just by virtue of being a person alive and on online uh, in, or just sort of in, in, I understand what it means to be burned out. Um, you know, men, men in their forties are, 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 are just a pole just as high as, you know, young moms and millennial, you know, uh, hustle culture kids. Like all of us are feeling burned out. So it sounds in some ways, my impression of, of, <laughs> of your work is sort of like anti self-help. Um, can we talk about like uh, the self-help section of the bookstore and, and, um, and maybe the the entrepreneur section of the bookstore. I think a lot of people listen to this podcast here. You know, I and I'm reading them too. Reading these books about how to, you know, the four hour work week, or it's the books about um, maybe some are more direct self help. I don't know. Some of them are, you know, trying mm-hmm. to transform yourself, or or if we can just hack the system and figure out how to how to do work and money and time better, um, we will help ourselves, you know, overcome this thing. So. Do you agree with that, that sentiment that you're almost like sort of the anti self, this is sort of the anti self-help book? Uh, I've heard that phrase used before <laughs> and I would, I'd be happy to be in that. I mean, I, self-help is a difficult thing because it is a lot of different things that fall under self-help these days. And at the, at the bottom of self-help is the idea that I need help. And I want to uh, applaud that. Like people are, mm. the reason those, those, those sections of the library or the bookstore are so big is because people are in pain <laughs> and um, want to feel happier and feel better. And so sometimes when you poo-poo self-help, it can be a little bit like um, 
do you not have compassion for the fact that people are dying for some solutions to their core issues? I think self-help comes into it when you're, when you're basically uh, putting all of the hope on the, uh, a person's willpower Mm. or internal resources to get the job done. And uh, there are all sorts of strategies. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in some of those books, um, I think. And you can find best practices for, you know, how to, what's your morning, best morning routine or, you know, how to work, balance work and life and all those things. I think you can glean some good things from them. But ultimately, the reason those, 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 um, the, the existence of self-help as a genre, uh, as a growing genre and a part of the market share, um, testifies to its inefficacy. Like it's, it's, it, if it worked, there wouldn't be more self-help books. So it would, um, uh, I am, I want my book just to be help books. So not, uh, not, not, I'm pro help. And I think help comes not from the self. I think it comes from others and then ultimately from God. So I, I, that's where the source of good and goodness and truth and beauty in the world is, um, is, uh, is, is really God. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to, I think it's a more hopeful book. People say, oh, this is kind of downbeat in certain ways. And, and, and it's actually, I tell tons of stories about all the transformative things I, you see around you when people look to where true hope is to be found. And I don't just mean, I do mean God. I mean, I, I'm talking about, you know, recovery groups where, gosh, they've got a low anthropology when you walk in there and everyone says they're an addict, even if they've been sober for 30 years, why don't you ever get better, et cetera, et cetera. That sounds so dark. And yet these are the, some of the most transformative, other-centered, uh, uh, contagiously hopeful uh, mm. communities you'll ever find. And the church at its best functions in a very similar way. Um so I want to be, uh, I want this book to be pro help, uh, skeptical of the self part, um, right. in a way that is also, um, beneficial to the self. Uh, so I don't know if that, that yeah. anti self help. Well, yeah. it's help. It's, it's not, it's, uh, it's acknowledging that the help has to come from outside of us. The problem yes. of self help is that we're stuck just with ourselves and we were the ones who made the problem in the first place. If, yeah. if you know, and if, if these self-help books worked, uh, you'd read one and then you wouldn't need all the other ones that you get, you know, interested in, in reading. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, or like all these new year's resolutions that people come into January with. And, uh, if they worked, you wouldn't keep having them every year. <laughs> I know. I was uh, telling someone the other day with yourself, we were doing a, um, I was doing a, uh, a reading group. Uh, some local guys are doing re looking at the book, and we were talking about New Year's resolutions. And I said, you know, I do finally have a. I used to just be so anti New Year's resolutions as a kind of a matter of course because they just seem to be a, a you know, it's it's it's, it's a way of an, another a sort of a prolonged way to feel worse about yourself. But the <laughs> I I said I do have like a resolution this year and I want to disappoint people more. Like I I have a person who's deeply afraid of disappointing other folks. Like I have a that's my deepest fear. Like I who don't don't want to disappoint my wife, don't want to disappoint my parents, don't want to disappoint my kids. And I think the spiritual path forward to, for me and the low anthropology way forward would be to sort of how do I become okay with the fact that I will disappoint other folks? And um, 
it's impossible yeah. to find out until you actually do it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and I had some guys be like, wow, that's kind of countercultural, Dave. I said, well, we'll see how it goes. I'm, 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 <laughs> I, maybe I disappointed you this evening. <laughs> anyway. Wanted to take a moment in this podcast conversation with David to talk to you about this idea of transformation because it can feel like a buzzword these days. Like what does transformation even mean? We're talking about self-help and how we transform ourselves or how we transform transform others or how the world is transformed. It can feel like a buzzword, but what does it even look like? Well, one place that I have seen transformation so evident is in the stories of former Compassion-sponsored children. That's the graduates or the alumni of the Compassion program who are now adults and are telling the story of how sponsorship impacted them. So I've met this woman named Rhea. She's originally from the Philippines and she had this impactful line as she shares her story about child sponsorship. And she said, Knowing someone cares for you, someone that you've never met, it changes you. Rhea's story is a powerful highlight of how being sponsored built Christ-like confidence in her and empowered her to take control of a future free from cycles of poverty. So today she's passionate and empowered to take hold of her future. But more than that, she's an advocate for kids and sponsors a child herself, get this, in the same community where she grew up. She's breaking these cycles herself now. So child trans child sponsorship does transform lives. And if you want to find more about Rhea and other stories like hers, you can go to child sponsorship information at compassion.ca slash if only. That's compassion.ca slash if only. Okay, back to the conversation now with David Zoll. Right. Well, okay. And and as a writing technique, because uh, I think some of my listeners are coming at this from this idea of how do we be better communicators of this good news. Hmm. Um, you use a lot of humor. Can we talk about your your choice as a writer to use humor? Because you're talking about something that can feel like, you know, a lot of our conversation, it can feel heavy. You know, this acknowledgement that there's a world of despair, suffering, depression, and we're part of it and we can't find the solution in ourselves. We have to look outside ourselves. Hmm. But uh, why, why humor? Is that just you? Like, you know, it's, is it an intentional choice? Um, what do you think humor does in this conversation? Well, partly it's just authentic to, to me. I, I, um, I, I don't know if I'm a funny person, but I certainly make jokes a lot. And that is, you know, it's uh, sometimes to my wife's chagrin and my kids. Uh, but yes, I think what I think humor does, I think humor, humor lowers people's defenses. It lowers mine. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not talking about humor in terms of like a pointed making fun of another person, but humor in, it, it oftentimes is an acknowledgement of what life is really like as opposed to what we pretend it is. And uh, it's a puncturing that is, that mm-hmm. is, that is, that I think is a, I, there's a part of the book where I talk about the fruit of low anthropology, one of which is being humor. And it's basically, an acknowledgement of our shared ridiculousness. I think there's something yeah. close to freedom in that. And so humor to me uh, is the uh, not taking oneself too seriously. I mean, I, as a Christian, I take God seriously and I take, I take suffering seriously, but I, myself, you know, I don't know. Um, I've, I've lived, I haven't lived that long, but I've lived long enough to realize that the stuff that I thought was important didn't turn out to be and stuff that turned out to be important was stuff that I didn't think was. And so my own, uh, barometers for, uh, reverence are pretty, uh, um, faulty. And so I think, uh, I think, I think a sh- a humor 
lowers people's defenses emotionally. It conveys sympathy and a sort of a I'm just like you kind of vibe. Mm. But also it's fun to laugh. I mean, what <laughs> um, life is hard. So like, uh, let's laugh. I, 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 um, I'm deeply suspicious of people of humorless Christians. Like that's a, that was a huh. big, you know, before I became what I would call a real serious Christian, one of the, the, which is funny, I'd say they use your word serious, but one of the biggest impediments to me was the perceived at least humorlessness. And for me, when I finally ran into a group of believers who were extremely funny, uh, huh. I, uh, that was where I, that was kind of that my faith came alive. And I think a lot of that, again, humor was an expression of freedom. And I think there's freedom at the heart of the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it, that's where humor comes in for me. And so yeah, I love that, this idea of the funny Christian permission to be funny. I have some some friends who are Christians exploring kind of as a, as a counter- reaction to a very serious kind of upbringing in religion um, who would still call themselves followers of Jesus, but they're exploring humor. Like they're taking like comedy improv classes. They're trying to be funnier because I think sometimes this business of religion can feel very serious. And the topic that we're talking about here, you know, this idea of, you know, there's despair and depression and addiction and failure, and we're all going to let each other down. Uh, so where is the funny piece of that, whether dark humor or not? Um. <laughs> the cover of the book, uh, Joanna, the cover of the book is yeah. a guy yanking a curtain off of a table and uh, he's clearly not very good at it because it's, if you're, if you're a magician and you do it right, uh, everything stays put. And yet this is, I like wanted trying it to, to be- pull the t pull the tablecloth without the stuff coming off. Without the stuff coming yeah. off. And so I wanted it to be playful. And funny in that respect of like, uh, even, um, he's not a very good magician and, um, there's something <laughs> fun funny about that, uh, to me yeah. at least, but what's remains on the table you'll notice is, an, is a lily, which isn't for me is a huh. uh, reference to Easter. Hmm. And so, you know, where, where are you seeing this play out? Like, do you have a, you know, as we kind of come to the end of our conversation, um, are you, do you have any uh, stories, examples, illustrations, um, ways you're, or even just ways you're imagining um, how a, this low anthropology is bringing urgent good news to people who need it most? And maybe even that can include ourselves. Well, I've just been on a book tour talking about all this stuff. So I have lots of people who've come up to me in, with tears in their eyes and said that this mm. is, um, uh, they, 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 they feel so hopeful after reading this book. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of, uh, uh, riding the wave of enthusiasm about it right now. Uh, but you know, I, I, in the talks for the book, one of the things I, I mentioned, I was, um, uh, there was a, there was a podcast I listened to with Daniel Pink, who was a, um, so, sort of a public intellectual guy, entrepreneur, mm -hmm. uh, a uh, guy who wrote a book called The Science or The Power of Regret recently. It came out last year. He was interviewed to talk about regret. And uh, he did this enormous survey of people, of their personal regrets. Uh, like 20,000 North Americans answered this survey. And he, he heard the most in, incredible, I mean, there's, think about the stuff that people would say about their personal regrets. He, he, not, not just sort of, I wish I'd saved more money or I wish I'd eaten better, but, you know, uh, the most heart-wrenching things you can imagine. And so the interviewer asked him at the end, they said, well, how are you doing? Are you depressed? Like you've just marinated, you've 
to, in, in, in the regrets of the world. And everyone seems to have regrets. And he said, you know, actually the opposite's true. I don't feel sad. I've never felt more connected to my fellow human beings and I've never had more compassion for uh, those oh. who might look or think differently than I do than right now. Um, to know that I'm not alone and that everyone uh, is can that, that there's a point of connection and the connection is not at the stuff we've done well, but the stuff we regret having not done or done poorly. Um, he's it's it that opens the floodgates and then i mean i listen to another podcast i love is one called dead eyes which is about a guy who gets fired from band of brothers uh the tom hanks is tom hanks fires him from the production of band of brothers because he's that's being an extra because he had quote-unquote dead eyes and so he, he goes about for three seasons <laughs> trying to figure wow. out what on earth tom cruise meant 20 years ago when he fired him as an extra for having dead eyes and what you have is everyone in showbiz coming on and telling these stories of these random rejections that they've faced over the years. And it's becomes this commiserating, but like fellowship of, of love and an outpouring. Mm -hmm. And I just want to get to know the people that I'd find impenetrable and difficult before I all of a sudden want to give a hug and I feel like they're my friends. And that's, that's to me tremendously exciting. I mean, my book is really meant to, um, I'm interested in the cause in, in Christianity and the world. And I don't think, uh, God makes sense emotionally to people without some sense of their need for God. Um, and, mm. uh, so the book is a, a long, uh, meditation on what it means to be a person who's in need of help. And it's, it's funny, it's lighthearted and it, highlights in all sorts of ways the way that a, like a more sober view of ourselves can can produce empathy and can produce curiosity and can humor and and love but ultimately it is a precursor to to why we might look not to ourselves but um to the horizon uh to the divine to to god to uh, when we talk about jesus christ being a savior how does that make sense outside of needing to be saved? Um, so that's, I wanted to get like three steps back from where people normally begin the God conversation and sort of get into a place of like, how do I make this emotionally intelligible to folks who maybe find it hostile or indifferent or have just so far, um, uh, how, do, how do we bring ourselves into that place? Because I heard so much talk, Joanna, in the culture about vulnerability and um, transparency, and people seem to be dying to tell the truth about themselves, and yet so afraid of any kind of moral dimension to that question. And um, and so, how do I? How do we make the case for grace? I think it begins with the admission of brokenness, helplessness, uh, and and need for 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 love, but also for redemption. Huh. Well, and, and what I, I hope that, um, I hope that what people are hearing too is there is in this conversation, like a hopefulness that like may people listening today and people reading your book and chewing on this issue, be free <laughs> to not have to do all the things, be good at all the things, succeed. And, and we talk about that, I think more and more in culture, but people still don't feel the freedom from it. But that is the point that like we are saved in Christ mm. through his uh, humanity and perfection mm. from the need to be human and perfect that actually he did it. So 
we're the point is we can't. Yeah, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> yeah, that I means so you could kind of take your your eyes off your own belly button and look to see what yeah. your neighbor needs. You know, um, how you can be of service and look at the gifts that we have been given. And I, I honestly feel a low anthropology is is hopeful also in the sense that like just it puts you in awe and wonder at all the amazing things that happen despite what you and I uh, can be like. Um, and 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 mm. to to travel through the world is it's a su- surprise party of the, the the blessings that God has in store for us. Yeah, uh, Dave. When we want to find more of you, Mockingbird, your books, where do you want to send people today? Our website is mbird.com. That's Amazon Mary B-I-R-D dot com. Um, that's where you can find uh, the Mocking Cast is the podcast that I host. It's a bi-weekly thing. Um, and we have a magazine as well. Uh, there are folks that are interested in print, beautiful print uh, work. Uh, then my books, I also have another book called Seculosity, How Career Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. It's quite a mouthful. That's available. And that's wherever. a whole other conversation. I We didn't have time to get into, but I would love to talk to you about all that too, this new religion. Um, we're all very religious people, whether we call it that or not. Mm. Um, but we didn't have time today. So, so people can go find your content, go find your resources. So, um, Dave, Dave, thank you for your work. Thank you for this thinking. Um, it's always a joy and an encouragement when I get to talk to people who actually feel an urgency, um, for good news going to people in the world. Um, I think a lot of us feel like, um, a sense of downplaying the word evangelical or evangelism is not a good word anymore. Mm. And this idea of sharing our belief system with others because it might actually bring them life. There's this reluctance Mm. and increasingly uh, we feel bashful about it or unsure if we should ever do it. And so I'm encouraged uh, to hear you are someone who loses sleep over this like I do. And uh, so I'm just glad to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Gosh, thank you, Joanna. Thanks for having me. David, thank you so much for that conversation. Next up, next week on the podcast, we have my friend Claire Hooper, who is millions of people checking her out on TikTok. And she's also a church planner. So we're talking about TikTok, church planting, how-tos, creativity, risk-taking. I think you're going to love this conversation. Claire has this amazing Manchester accent. And I think you're just going to love learning from her. And her enthusiasm is totally contagious. So Thanks so much to our sponsors who make this podcast possible every week. Compassion Canada, lifting children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And the new podcast, Scripture Untangled by the Canadian Bible Society. Check us out on YouTube. We got those tutorials. We've got the back catalog of all the podcasts we've done. And uh, we'd love to see you and engage with you. Like, subscribe, share. If this podcast helps you, pass it along to somebody else. That could be your good deed for the day. And hey, it helps more people find out about Word Made Digital and all the resources we have, free stuff to help you. So thanks so much. And we'll see you next week on the Word Made Digital Podcast.